Good morning. Well, it's a joy to see you uh, here this morning. Um, please turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That's where we'll be today. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We'll be looking at uh, verses 12 on through the end of chapter 2. So a rather big passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, and as you turn there, let me just say what a joy it is to uh, be with you this morning, to have the privilege of, of preaching God's Word to you. Um, if we haven't met, my name is uh, Sam Parkinson. I'm the uh, theology professor at the Gulf Theological Seminary, which is a seminary that partners with uh, ECC and uh, also a member here. My, my wife and I are members here at this congregation, and uh, we love this church dearly. And so uh, it's a joy to, to preach God's word, and I'm thankful for uh, the pastors and the elders for extending the invitation for me to do it. And uh, yeah, we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Uh, let me ask you to, to join me in prayer one more time. We'll ask for the Lord's help uh, before we begin to look at this passage. Let's pray. Our holy triune God, we are your people, and we are here to adore you. We're not here to pretend perfection or self-sufficiency. We recognize this morning that we need you. And we ask that you would speak to us through your holy word, Lord Jesus, for we need to hear from our King. Draw us near to yourself by the love of the Spirit to the glory of the Father. We ask that you would convince us, O triune God, of your sufficiency. Lord, would you take this word and plant it in our hearts? Would you water the hearts of those who hear your word so that your seed sown in my weakness may be raised in your power? Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, pleading his blood and righteousness alone. Amen. What is the highest good? Another way of asking this question is, what is the greatest end we can strive toward? In what does the good life consist? What does a good life consist of? And we kind of cheated this morning with the Westminster Confession, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the, the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's getting at the question of what is the good life? Uh, what is the highest good? This is a question that has occupied the contemplations and the musings of philosophers throughout the ages across the world over, and I wonder if you, if you hadn't had the, the answer uh, told to you this morning, I wonder how you would have answered this question. I wonder how people in your own country answer this question. Uh, in my country, the, my home country of America, uh, the answer to this question, what does the good life consist of, is incredibly predictable. The good life in America consists of sex, money, and power or influence, or fame. Now, before I moved to the UAE, I had prepared myself to face a whole different set of answers to that question uh, once I moved here. But I have to tell you, I've been a little bit shocked by the similarity. Uh, in fact, the, the glitz and the glamour of Abu Dhabi and uh, Dubai put my own hometown of Kansas City in America to shame. And I can say that residents in the UAE are just as capable of pursuing happiness through wealth, 
and pleasure as anyone in America. We come here, people come here to this country to get rich. And if they succeed, they idolize their riches and they find comfort in the security of of riches that pass away. And if they don't, they sacrifice their lives trying to get rich uh, or they look resentfully at those who are rich or they go into debt to pretend that they're rich, right? Isn't that the phrase, buy now, pay later? So far from this question of, of, of happiness, the, the, the uh, source of true happiness, far from that being some unrelatable or irrelevant question for academics and armchair philosophers, this question gets at what animates people all over the world. Where is happiness found? What is the good life? And it's, this is the question that Solomon, King Solomon, uh, gives himself to considering throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the, one of the words that is repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is translated in your English translation as vanity, uh, but the, the word is, uh, in Hebrew, it's called hevel, and it, it can tr- be translated as something like fleetingness, or vapor, or mist. It's here one moment, and it's gone the next. And uh, you can think about this book of Ecclesiastes as a kind of thought experiment. You'll, you'll see the preacher, you'll see Solomon, embody the position of the nihilist at various points. This is the person who thinks that there is no ultimate purpose in this world. And so he'll give voice to that kind of skeptic who refuses to fear God as he experiences all that which is under the sun, all the fleetingness, all the vapor that is under the sun. And he will show that this way of viewing the world leads to utter despair. This is what logicians and philosophers called a reductio ad absurdum. It, it is a reduction to the absurd. He, uh, he embodies a position. He embodies a way of viewing the world. And then he shows how that way of viewing the world leads to absurdity. This, by the way, is why the book of Ecclesiastes should not be Uh, embraced as a book that justifies depression uh, or justifies a cynical outlook. Some people love the book of Ecclesiastes because they think, oh, I'm a pessimist, and here is a book that is inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit to to justify my pessimism. No, that is not what's happening in the book of of Ecclesiastes, nor uh, does it counteract pessimism uh, by some kind of uh, 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 infantile optimism either. The book of Ecclesiastes looks hard at the face of difficulty in this life, and it roots your joy, it roots your satisfaction in something that is shifting and eternal and not subject to change, not subject to passing away. So he gets in the position of the nihilist, and he shows how this way of viewing the world leads to absurdity. And when he does this, he speaks from the vantage point of his past self. Solomon himself lived a life of the nihilist. He lived a life of the person who didn't consider anything as having ultimate purpose and just pursuing satisfaction in all the things of this world. And he shows us what that outlook got him when he lived so much of his life in active disregard of God. So hevel or vapor or fleetingness, that word we see as vanity in our text, hevel without God leads to despair. If all that exists is that which is under the sun, then all the fleetingness of this life 
is just reason for despair. But occasionally, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon will pull back the curtain and he'll reveal how he actually sees the world now when he's writing in light of his fear of God. And when he does that, he reveals how all of these experiences, all of this fleetingness that he experiences in this life can actually be regarded as a divine gift. So the fleetingness of this life without God leads to despair, but fleetingness in this life with the fear of God leads to gratitude. And so today, we're going to see the preacher do both of these things. He's going to uh, put on his nihilist hat, and then he's going to take it off, and he's going to put on his true wisdom hat, and he's going to do this by tracing out his past descent into worldliness. He's going to give a sort of autobiography of the kind of uh, pursuit of his life, pursuing pleasure in the things of this world to see uh, where that got him. He shows us how he tried to anchor his life in everything that is found under the sun and how all of it, everything that was under the sun, was found wanting. And so throughout this passage, he's going to look for ultimate satisfaction apart from God behind certain kinds of pursuits. He's going to say, is joy, is happiness to be found here? Is joy, is happiness to be found here? So let's let him teach us. Uh, Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. These are the words of God. Solomon says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, I want to begin by noting that the preacher here attributes the vanity of this world to God. Uh, It is, he says, an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So he's blaming God. Now, remember... Uh, The preacher is talking right now from the vein of his past self. He's giving voice to the way of thinking of the person that does not honor God, or the, the, the voice of the person who thinks that all that exists is that which is under the sun. And for that person, if there is a God, he has done an incredibly cruel thing by putting us here in this world with so much suffering and so much vapor and so much fleetingness. I once saw someone on social media quote uh, Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is a a uh, famous actor and public intellectual atheist from uh, the UK. And someone asks him in an interview, what would you say to God if you ever found out that God actually existed? If you, so, so Stephen Fry does not believe in God, but the question is, if you, ever, if you ever found out that God was real and you came face to face with him and you could ask him a question, what would you say? And this is what Stephen Fry gave as an answer. He said, I would say, how dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. 
Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? Now, this comment is full of a lot of problems at the face. Uh, Not the least is the problem that to reject God is to reject the ultimate source and standard of morality, in which case Fry no longer has a standard by which he can judge anything, let alone God as unjust or evil. Uh, This is what uh, C.S. Lewis uh, describes as sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. But regardless, I think Stephen Fry's comment is really helpful for us in that it helps to understand the mentality that Solomon describes here as being an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. If there is a God, for, for the person that does not love and respect God, if there is a God, then he has done an incredibly cruel thing by putting us in this world. Now, the preacher, Solomon, will come out of this perspective at the end of this uh, passage. He's going to come out of this perspective, and when he does, he will speak with true wisdom. But we should understand, we should know just ahead of time, that when he does, uh, when, he, when he comes out of this perspective, the attribution of all of this happening being determined by God is still there. In other words, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't shed his cynicism. He's, he's going to shed his cynicism. But he doesn't shed his cynicism by saying, none of this vanity, none of this vapor, none of this fleetingness is actually from God. God hasn't created us to live in this world with so much passing away. He doesn't say that. He still attributes it all to God. And he calls it good. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right now, Solomon is testing earthly wisdom as a source for meaning. Is earthly wisdom a justification for his hard existence? And so he accumulates knowledge and information. And what does he learn at the end of it? What is there to show for it? He learns with even more accuracy his own powerlessness. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. You're not in control over anything. Thus, when he applies his heart to know wisdom and to know folly, he concludes that all is striving after wind. It's like trying to grab hold of wind. There's no solidity to it. He says, for in much wisdom is much vexation or frustration or confusion. And he concludes that in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. And is that not unbelievably clear for us? We've come to know this, right? Solomon is not wrong. And this generation, across the globe, uh, we have more information. We are inundated with information. We're bombarded with news feeds and articles and videos and information upon information upon information. We can get so much information. And has, this, this is the question, has the accumulation of nonstop knowledge done anything to increase our joy? Does it make us fuller? Does it make us happier? No, I think sociologists, sociological trends seem to confirm what the preacher says here. That the increase of knowledge doesn't come automatically with the increase of joy, but rather often with the increase of sorrow. And this is why. If all that exists is that which is under the sun, then increasing in knowledge simply amounts to increasing for reasons for despair. 
If all that exists is that which is under the sun, then all you're doing as you increase in knowledge is that you're increasing in more reasons to despair. So Solomon goes behind door number one. He explores door number one to find ultimate satisfaction. Knowledge. Is there ultimate satisfaction behind more knowledge? No. Nothing but sorrow. Okay, what about door number two? What about self-indulgent licentiousness? What about the uninhibited pursuit of pleasure? Well, let's see. Chapter 2, verse 1. Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly that I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the sun during, or to do under heaven during the day, few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who, had bor- who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure and kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, if you can't identify with the impulse of what Solomon was trying to do here, I think you might be in denial. Solomon was given the power and the means to pursue every kind of pleasure and self-indulgence that existed at the time on the planet with no living human being to whom he would be held accountable. No living person to answer to. There was no one above him on the, on the authority, hierarchy, totem pole. This is the, he was at the top. Who would question him? Who would keep him from from pursuing the things that he wanted to pursue? And if that wasn't strong enough temptation for him to plunge headlong into hedonism, a life of sensual pleasure, he also had intellectual justification for doing this, right? Here is Solomon in this passage, the philosopher on the search for truth and meaning. He had just gone down the route of accumulation of knowledge and found nothing but sorrow at the end of that trail, and so now... He hypothesizes, perhaps pleasure is the source of truth and meaning and joy. Maybe the pursuit of pleasure is the path to the good life. And so he deliberately plunges headlong into anything and everything to delight his sensations. No desire for him is too selfish. No desire is too taboo. Nothing is off the table. In fact, he considers it his duty as a teacher as a philosopher, as the scientist here, the sage, to discover for himself if security and lasting happiness is to be found behind this door of pleasure. And so he's meticulous. He's exhaustive in his pursuit of pleasure. Is there pleasure to be found in power? 
then he must enjoy and exercise unbridled power. Is there pleasure to be found in music? Then he spares no expense to accumulate musicians. Is there delight to be found in the use of substances? Then he must not turn down wine and strong drink. Is there pleasure to be found in sensuality? Then he accumulates concubines and nothing is withheld from him. No beautiful woman is outside of his reach. Is there pleasure to be found in parties and material possessions and large homes and breathtaking amenities and wealth? Then he must have them all. He must feel them with his fingertips. He must feel and hear the full belly laughter of parties and revelry. This stage of the preacher's life is one of full-blown intoxication with pleasure. And during this time, he says several times that his wisdom remains with him, which means that he is able to accurately analyze the experience after the fact. He knows what he's doing. And what is his conclusion? What's at the end of this road? What is the result of this, exper- of this experiment? A vacuous black hole. Emptiness. There's just nothing there. But of course, we knew that that was going to be his answer even before he said it explicitly, didn't we? The UAE is one of the most affluent societies in the most affluent age in the history of the world. And what is there to show for it? How many, how many marriages do we know personally, maybe our own marriages, that have fallen apart with millions of dirhams in the bank account? How many celebrities do we watch find themselves empty and depressed after a long and public submergence into debauchery? How many ordinary people are enslaved, enslaved in addiction of habitual sin, which began with the basic pursuit of pleasure? Just a little bit more, because I love how it feels. Indeed, how many, how many of us in this congregation, brothers and sisters, fit such a description? We're all little Solomons right? Most of us, most of us here as a people, most of us here as a people compared to the rest of the world and compared to the rest of world history are filthy rich. Now, I recognize that there is, there is poverty represented in this congregation, but I'm saying by comparison to the rest of the world and the rest of world history, we're filthy rich. We have access to all sorts of pleasure. We are Filthy rich, indulgent, entertainment, intoxicated, self-concerned little Solomons. In fact, Solomon himself had to actually go out and accumulate concubines for his harem. It, was, it took some work. But we can literally walk around with harems in our pockets and smartphones, which make smart people do dumb things. We hold nothing back from our pursuit of pleasure, and yet it's all wind. There's nothing to it. These pursuits are here one moment and gone the next. We experience gratification for a moment, but no lasting satisfaction. We know from our own experience what the preacher came to know from his experience, that satisfaction, ultimate, lasting satisfaction, could not be found, could not be found in the uninhibited pursuit of pleasure. Okay, so another miss. The accumulation of wisdom didn't offer Solomon anything but sorrow. Uh, So then he decides to look at pursuit of pleasure, but that left him empty and wanting. So what lies behind door number three? Prudent living. 
Perhaps if you can organize your life in such a wise way, considering all of the decisions and making plans and decisions in a responsible way, not rashly, not impulsively, maybe some security, maybe some transcendent meaning can be come through that way. Verse 12, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man, uh, for what can the man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. So Solomon says that all things being equal, it is better to be wise than to be foolish. It's better to be informed than to be ignorant in the same way that we should prefer to have sight than to be blind. So it's relatively better, that's true. But the question is, is it so much better that it in any way pushes back the enigma of this world's fleetingness? Does it do a thing to resolve the conundrum of what he calls this world's vexation, frustration, disappointment. No. You can live wisely, and it's better to live wisely than to live foolishly, but it doesn't guarantee anything. You still experience the same things that the fool experiences. You live in struggle. Bad things happen. Promising business ventures turn on their own heads. Bad things happen, and no matter how much account you take of them, life happens. You cannot secure your own safety or even your own legacy, and then, Solomon says, you die and you're forgotten. Well, <laughs> that didn't work either. Solomon gave himself to the accumulation of knowledge and found himself simply more sorrowful. He gave himself to the uninhibited pursuit of pleasure and he was left empty. He gave himself to prudent living, but all his careful planning did not ultimately provide any sort of lasting security. So what's left? Well, perhaps he can find meaning in his vocation. Maybe work, maybe work driven by ambition and desire for success can fill what is vacuous in his soul. We know what's going to happen, but we should go ahead and read it anyways. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it all to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? All this monotony. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Boy, the preacher can identify with all of us, can he? Are you obsessed with academic pursuits and the accumulation of knowledge? 
Well, he's been down that road, and he is here to tell you that it won't satisfy. Are you obsessed with pleasure, addicted to pleasure, and addicted to the intoxication of sensual and material delights? He's here to tell you he's, that he's been there and done that, and he assures you that there's nothing there. Are you a planner who's obsessed with organizing your life, and you use spreadsheets to plan everything out, and you're fearful of the unexpected? Well, the preacher is here to tell you that he's probably a better planner than you are, and even he was blindsided by life. Are you a workaholic, obsessed with making a name for yourself and building up a monument of your own accomplishments, losing sleep over your ambitious need to be successful? Well, this also is vanity, says the preacher. You're losing sleep to erect a monument that certainly will not last forever and may not even make it to the next generation. So don't sacrifice your life or your family on the altar of work, says the preacher, because nothing you build will last forever. And thus we see that Solomon shows the all-too-common tragedy of life under the sun, life in this world. There are fewer things in this life more tragic than the person who cannot find happiness. The person who gives himself, his life, to accumulating and finding security and happiness in all the things of this life, who endures sleepless nights in his stressful and anxious preservation of wealth, but with no happiness to show for it. And friends, it's a sickness that clutches and covets. It's a sickness of the heart that clutches and covets and envies and ever remains restless and discontent. And here's the thing, you don't actually need any money to suffer from this soul sickness. Don't be deceived. This point, the point of this passage, is not to only warn about the tragedy, to point out the tragedy of the millionaire in his mansion, surrounded by wealth and material possessions, unable to enjoy any of them. The book of Ecclesiastes calls attention to that, to that tragedy, but it also calls attention to the tragedy of the paycheck-to-paycheck day laborer who looks with malice and ugly jealousy at the millionaire from his bus. It's the tragedy of the husband and father who's unable to enjoy the unspeakable blessing of a wife and children and instead views them as a burden. It's the tragedy of the single woman who looks with malice and ugly jealousy at her married friends. It's the tragedy, dear friends. It is a tragedy to receive so much life and yet be prevented from enjoying any of it, and this is a danger for all of us. The inability to be grateful for what we have and the desperate attempt to find security in that which is transient, that which is passing away, that which is elusive. Now, it's at this point that the preacher reveals his above-the-sun perspective. If all that exists is that which is under the sun, nothing but despair because no ultimate satisfaction or lasting happiness can be found in any of it. But now he shifts to his above-the-sun perspective. A transition is marked by this phrase in verse 24, there is nothing better. And so I want you to note all the things that the preacher now identifies as reasons for rejoicing. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Now what's wrong with this passage? 
Solomon just spent all that time complaining about things like eating and drinking and toil. And now he's saying that we should thank God for these same things. Why is the preacher not contradicting himself when he turns from despairing over eating and drinking and working to praising these activities as coming from the hand of God? See, at one point, he blames God for giving these things, and then the next point, he praises God for giving the very same things. What has happened? Well, what's happened is that the tr- the, the, between verses 23 and 24, we shift from the old preacher, the old Solomon of worldly wisdom, to the true preacher of biblical wisdom. When you look at the earlier portions of this passage in which God is an afterthought or a burden, the entire pressure is placed on the autonomous self, the individual, to discover meaning. Now you almost have the exact photo negative in this, in this part of the passage where the philosopher is portrayed as the philosopher of the book of Proverbs, right? And in the book of Proverbs we read, the, the, fear, the, the uh, wisdom is the, be- the beginning of of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's how we get wisdom, the fear of the Lord. So these last few verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon gives voice to a Proverbs-like philosopher, and he thus demonstrates for us the principle of what C.S. Lewis called first and second things. So here's the principle. You ready for it? The principle of first and second things. Here's the principle. When you love second things in the in the place of first things, you lose both. But when you love first things first and second things second, your loves are properly ordered and you can receive all of it. When you love secondary things in the place of primary things, you lose both. So the example uh, that C.S. Lewis uses is the dog owner who treats her dog like a child. Uh, I've, I've dubbed a term for this. I call it idoglatry. And uh, you, can, you can use it. You can use it, but you have to credit me for it, okay? <laughs> Idolatry, the, the, the person who treats their dog, their, who treats their pet like a child. C.S. Lewis says, okay, not only has that woman not become a mother, regardless of whether she calls herself a fur baby or anything like that, she has not become a mother. She's also lost the joy of owning a pet because she's tried to turn the pet into something that it's not. She's making the pet more than a pet. Uh, or he talks about the drunkard who flees to wine for his ultimate satisfaction and basically says not only does he fail to achieve his ultimate satisfaction, he also misses out on the lesser joy of receiving God's good gifts. Another example is the doting mother who treats her children as the means for her ultimate happiness. Not only does she fail to achieve her ultimate happiness, she also misses out on the lesser joy of actually rearing children. And in all of these cases, it's the secondary things that are abused. The dog is robbed of its dignity of dogness. (laughs) Wine is disfigured and perverted and turned from a blessing into an idol. Children either suffer under the soul-crushing disappointment of unhappy parents because they could never actually be the ultimate satisfaction for their parents, Or they are made into little tyrants, and they are robbed of the experience of being raised by parents who train them in godliness and are instead used as a means to their parents' end. Friends, it is an ugly business loving secondary things in the place of primary things. 
But when our loves are rightly ordered and we worship God above all else, everything else takes its rightful place in our hearts as gifts of divine grace. So when the preacher was trying to pursue knowledge and pleasure and wealth and work as his ultimate purpose, all was grasping after wind. Not only was he left purposeless, he was also left with the inability to enjoy those earthly experiences. But when he identified God in his rightful place, all those things were put in their proper place. Right? They were not the means to the good life. They could never be that. They could not sustain the weight of meeting his ultimate satisfaction. But they were gifts. So what do you do when you can't find satisfaction in anything under the sun? You look above the sun. And then all the things that happen under the sun can be received as gift. This is why he says in verse 25, For to the one who pleases God, to pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting. What I want to point out to you is that on paper, God has given them both the same thing. The ability to enjoy all of these things is the same thing on paper as gathering and collecting. But where those who do not fear God view all of the vapor, all of the fleetingness of this life, all of the temporary struggle and enjoyment and challenge and suffering and pleasure, all of this as a mysterious, enigmatic burden, God's people can receive it as a gift. This is possible when we are convinced of two truths. Okay, are you ready for them? These two truths. You have to be convinced of in order to gratefully receive all of the vapor, all of the fleetingness in this life. You have to be convinced of these two truths. Number one, you have to believe that God is totally, absolutely, exhaustively sovereign, in control of every single thing that happens, without exception. You have to be convinced of that truth. But that's not all. You also have to be convinced that that God, who is totally sovereign, is good and for you, okay? If you are convinced of those two truths, then you can come to experience the, the good of this life and the bad of this life as temporary, fleeting, here one moment, gone the next, packages from God to you. You, you, can't, you can't just automatically assume that everything happens in your life is actually from God to you unless you believe that God is sovereign. And you can't receive it with gratitude unless you believe that this sovereign God is also good and for you and for your good. So the good that we experience, if we become convinced of those two truths, the good that we experience is a temporary blessing that God has given for us to enjoy right now. Not later, right now. It's like manna. It will rot if you try to keep it forever. Right? So the liberty, the liberty that you experience as a single person. That's a joy for you to experience right now, not later when, Lord willing, you're married, right? So experience that joy right now. This is what God has given for you right now. Enjoy it. The belly laughter that you hear from your toddler, the cooing of your, your baby, the night of intimacy with your spouse, the breezy morning air in Abu Dhabi December morning, that is God's pre-packaged blessing for you to enjoy the moment he gives it to you. It's from him so you can receive it with gratitude. If God is above the sun and everything that we experience is a personal gift with our name written on it, 
we can experience all of it as a tremendous blessing from him. We can experience music. We can walk around like, oh, music. God has given me a mind to recognize melodies and harmonies. That's wonderful. Color. God didn't create the world in grayscale. He totally could have, but he didn't do that. He's given us color. He's given us taste buds. It's much easier to thank God for taste buds living in Abu Dhabi than it is in America. The food here is incredible. Taste buds. God's given us taste buds. He's given us things. When we, when we receive all of these things as a gift from God, we can worship in the face of things like crispy, flaky, paratha stuffed with kima and aloo. Or my wife's buttery chicken pot pie. Or fresh coffee perfectly brewed. Or the Lord's Day, worship. We get to do this every week. We get to go to heaven every week. That's amazing. So we can receive all of this as a temporary gift that is prepackaged from God to us to receive the moment he gives it to us. But it's not just that. It's not just the joys that God has prepared for us. It's also the pain and the trial and the difficulty. These two are temporary prepackaged seasons arranged by God for us. And just as an aside, let us take this as an, as an opportunity to deny outright, to not believe, to reject the damnable lie of the prosperity gospel that says if you trust God enough, all your life will be comfortable all the time. And if you're experiencing suffering, it must be because you are not exercising enough faith. Not true. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God also arranges for suffering for us. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to pretend to enjoy our suffering, but it does mean that we don't have to despair over it because it's not a waste and it's not an accident. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that this light and momentary affliction might be preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension if we respond in a right way. He doesn't say that. I just misquoted scripture to you. I'm sorry. What he says is, This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look to the things that are seen, uh, not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're vapor, they're vanity, they're, they're hevel. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, we may never figure out what God was doing with the suffering that we experience in this life until glory. We may never figure it out until glory. But knowing, knowing these two truths, knowing that God is sovereign and that God is for us, we can endure those seasons of trial with the confidence that they are not accidents. God has good purposes for us by them. And listen, friends, none of this is possible in the abstract. What we are invited into from this book is not a mere shift of perspectives. Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying just look on the bright side. Try to have a shift of perspective. That's not what what we're invited into. To be convinced that God is sovereign and that God is for you is to be invited into the very personal love of God. To be invited into the ocean of divine blessedness. And that's not strictly conceptual. That's not just a mindset sort of thing. That is a deeply personal experience to be brought into the ocean of God's love. And listen, friends, there is no being brought into God's love apart from being brought into Christ himself. It is only when we accept the invitation to come to Christ 
that we will be given the power to enjoy that which is under the sun. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I firmly believe that one of those heavenly blessings, one of those spiritual blessings that the Father blesses us with in Christ is the, is the power to enjoy all of this heaven in this world, all of the fleetingness, all of the vapor in this world as a gift from God. Now, if that's true, and this power to enjoy life under the sun is one of the countless spiritual blessings that we receive in Christ, then it is also true that that blessing, like every other blessing in the heavenly places, is unavailable outside of Christ. So what does that mean for those of us who are weary of all the vapor and all the fleetingness of this life? What does that mean for those of us who cannot find satisfaction in rooting our ultimate security in anything under the sun? It means that we must root it above the sun. And the way that we get above the sun is by coming to Christ himself. For those of us who find ourselves unable to enjoy God's blessing and unable to accept his toil, our marching orders are not to fundamentally try to either denigrate earthly experiences in this life or to try to muscle our way towards enjoying life's fleetingness. You can't just say, "Mm, self, enjoy all the fleetingness of this life. Do it, self. That won't work. You can't just convince yourself to enjoy all the fleetingness of this life. Rather, your marching orders are to raise, maximize your vision of and affection for Christ, the Christ who is above the sun. Christ, the one who is truly God and truly man, the one who is eternally and unchangeably one with the Father and the Spirit in his divine nature, and who became one with us by taking on a human nature. In other words, the one who came from above the sun to be born under the sun to bring us into the love of God, the God who is above the sun. The one who came to our world of vapor, to this world of fleetingness and vanity to bring us up to set our feet on the solid and eternal ground of God's love. In him, we have the assurance that this sovereign God of the universe is for us. How? How do we have that assurance in Christ? We have that assurance in Christ, in Christ alone, because he came for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He paid the wages of sin that separated us from the love of God with his perfect life and death and resurrection so that now nothing has to lie between us and the God who is above the sun. We come to Christ, we get there above the sun, above all the transience and all the fleetingness and all the vapor of this life if we come to Christ. So my closing charge to you, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, My closing charge to you is always, and is today, come to Christ by faith today. Deny yourself. Abandon your pursuit of joy and knowledge, joy in knowledge or wealth or power or pleasure or work or whatever else you are tempted to worship in this life above all else. Look above the sun for ultimate satisfaction. Look above the sun, not under the sun. Ultimate satisfaction is found above the sun. Under the sun, you can expect nothing but fleetingness. And friends, don't you see that all that exists is under the sun, that all that exists under the sun is temporary. It is fleeting. It is unpredictable. It's transient. It's changeable. It's unstable. 
which means that you should not bank your life or your soul on any of it. And if there is no God above the sun, it's all meaningless anyways. The mere monotony and repetition and uncontrollability will appropriately drive you mad. But the good news is that there is a God who is above the sun. And coming to him as your ultimate good turns all of the transient fleetingness, all of these fleeting experiences of this life into gifts. Since there is a sovereign God over the universe, none of it is meaningless. And if you are reconciled to him, if you are reconciled to him, you will be positioned to delight in all of these things as meticulously placed for a good purpose by a good God. It was uh, the early church father from North Africa, St. Augustine, who said, you have made us for yourself. Oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Are you restless? Find your rest in him. You cannot reconcile to this God on your own terms. He sets the terms for you. He has come to you in the person and work of Christ. All you can do to accept his terms for reconciliation is receive all that Christ has done on your behalf by faith and faith alone. And friends, just to encourage you, he is the most approachable, excellent, beautiful, understanding, unshockable person you will ever meet. So come to him. Bring to him your emptiness and he will fill you with the fullness of divine love. Lasting love. Love that is situated above the sun, above all the temporary fleetingness of this life. And now lastly, believers, I charge you, I charge you to remember that although you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you experience the very same fleeting, vaporous, hevel as everyone else in this world, you know the God who dwells above the sun, who governs all things. And that means that you can receive everything in this life as a gift. You can live, you can live, brothers and sisters, you can live in the liberty of not finding ultimate satisfaction in any of this under the sun reality. So that all of it might be received as a gift, infused with meaning intended by the God who is above the sun. So Christian, I charge you to cling ever closer to Christ so that you can foster gratitude. Don't kill your joy with ingratitude. In Christ, every promise is yes and amen. In Christ, everything, everything is gift. It's all from God. So be grateful. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you are a God who is unchangeable. You are a God who is eternal. You are a God who is immutable and strong, strong enough to endure. You can be an anchor for us as we live in this life of constant shift, constant fleetingness, constant joys that are here one moment and gone the next. You can be our lasting security. And so I ask, God, that you would orient all of our hearts in that way. Let us order our loves appropriately. Let us love you first so that we can love secondary things appropriately as secondary things. And I pray, Lord, if there are any here who are still far from you, would you draw them to yourself? Would you awaken within them the, 
the awareness of their own restlessness so that they can find their heart's rest in you. And I pray that you would do all of this for the glory of your name, for our edification. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.